Welcome to Season 10 of American Political History, The North American Contest, General Uprising. General Amherst was now in charge of the administration of Canada and the vast new territories of the Ohio Valley. His main concern was reducing cost, as Whitehall's willingness to expend revenue in North America was going to rapidly diminish as war continued in Europe. His 16,000 soldiers would be reduced within weeks when he was informed that 2,000 soldiers would be redeployed to the West Indies. A couple of weeks later, 7,000 of his soldiers would be redeployed for the invasion of Martinique. General Amherst had come to the opinion that colonial militia was barely worth the rations to pay for them. But with the redeployment of his men, he had no choice but to request colonial militia to garrison the capture French forts from Louisbourg to Quebec to the Great Lakes. General Amherst's next initiative to reduce cost was to promote the settlement around those captured forts, specifically granting land to enterprising young officers with military experience, and he didn't discriminate between English or colonial officers. His bet was that if the trained officers were settling near those frontier forts, they would be able to rally their community for its own defense without calling upon him for aid. His next move was to organize reliable supply lands to those frontier forts, ensuring stable and low prices of food would greatly increase the likelihood of settlers to pick those locations for settlement. These strong and robust communities provided him the least likelihood that he would have to expend his resources, which he did not have any longer. By 1761, the Monondagala, Loyalhana, and Allegheny River basins were attracting so many settlers that the commandant of Fort Pittsburgh had to strictly forbid the settlement of areas outside those authorized. On February 10, 1763, the Treaty of Paris was signed. England would receive overseas concessions from France from around the world. In North America, the French would surrender all territorial claims to lands east of the Mississippi River, except for New Orleans. They would also guarantee unrestricted navigation of the Mississippi River to all British subjects. In the Caribbean, the islands of St. Vincent, Dominica, Tobago, Grenada, and the Grenadines would all be surrendered to England. In Africa, the territory of Senegal was surrendered to them. In the Mediterranean, Menorca was returned to England. In India, France surrendered all fortifications built since 1749 and returned two East India Company ports. In Europe, France was to restore the territory in Hanover, Hesse, and Brunswick. Spain turned over Florida to Great Britain, renounced its claims to Newfoundland fisheries, sanctioned English logging on the coast of Honduras, and agreed to allow the British Admiralty and their courts to dictate disputes concerning Spanish vessels seized by the British during the war. In return for all of this, Britain would restore the islands of Goree, Martinique, Guadalupe, and St. Lucia to the French. They would permit the French to resume fishing in the waters off of Newfoundland, and to trade with Indian trading posts established before 1749. Havana would be returned to Spanish control, and the promise that England would not build forts in Honduras. After the defeat of the French, 
Whitehall began to turn its attention away from North America, concerning itself with the business of its burgeoning worldwide empire. They assigned Sir William Johnson, Indian superintendent for North America, to introduce Canadian and Ohio nations to the rule of King George as their father. A few years later, in April of 1673, a cultural event would lead the nations of the Ohio Valley to strike against colonial America. The Ottawa sachem, Pontanac, would call upon traditional Delaware prophet visions of Armageddon to associate English encroachment with the apocalypse of native societies. He would persuade the Ottawa, Potawatomi, and Wyandot nations to join him in war. They attacked a local garrison of 120 redcoats with 460 warriors. When they failed to surprise the garrison, they decided to siege it. A few weeks later, Pontanac's sieging force had grown to over 900 warriors from half a dozen nations, and they began capturing English caravans traveling in the region. Momentum began to carry itself into a general uprising in the western Ohio Valley. By May 16th, the Wendat warriors captured Fort Sandusky on the west end of Lake Erie. By May 25th, Potawatomi warriors had captured Fort St. Joseph in modern Niles, Michigan. Miami, Kickapoo, Mascoten, and Way warriors took Fort Miami in modern Fort Wayne, Indiana. On June 2nd, Chippewa warriors pretended to play a game of lacrosse with the garrison at Fort Mikala Mackinac. Within minutes of entry, they had killed the entire garrison. The Ottawa and Chippewa captured Fort Edward Augustus at modern Green Bay, Wisconsin. Ottawa, Chippewa, and Seneca warriors attacked and captured all of the block stations between Fort Niagara and Fort Pitt. Delaware and Shawnee warriors would patrol around Pittsburgh, cutting off communication with eastern Pennsylvania and destroying settlements along the Forbes Road. Delaware sachems would approach Fort Pitt itself and demand that the fort be evacuated and surrendered. The commandant would host those Delaware sachems, giving them gifts to show his current strength. He would explain to them that Fort Pitt had 500 soldiers within its garrison and that they were the best supplied fort in the Ohio Valley. He had also given those sachems blankets from the smallpox ward. In reaction to the general uprising, General Amherst mobilized three regiments of redcoats under the command of Major Gladwin. Amherst gave Major Gladwin standing orders to immediately put to death any captured natives. The only security for our future was to punish them so severely that anything else was better than the treatment of the treacherous at our hands. This campaign would be strategized around two factors— First, Amherst knew that there would be no reinforcements coming from England. He would have to rely on colonial militia. Second, he had learned from monitoring reports from the Cherokee War that native warriors had double duty. The longer they were at war, the less they would be able to work on that nation's winter crops. Both reasons led to a defensive strategy. Although the natives had taken many forts, they had failed to take any of the major distribution forts. All Amherst had to do was reinforce those forts and wait for the natives to spend themselves in war. This war could be won with very limited action on the battlefield. And by 1763, General Amherst's plan was working perfectly. 
The natives had used their stocks of ammunition and returned home before the winter. As 1764 rolled around, he would go on the offense and subjugate the native rebels. Sir William Johnson would negotiate to keep the other Iroquois nations neutral, isolating the Seneca who had joined in this rebellion. The first expedition would use New York and New Jersey militia. It traveled west from Fort Niagara to Fort Detroit, bringing the nations along the Great Lakes to heel. The second expedition was a mixture of redcoats and militia. It would leave from Pennsylvania along Forbes Road. They would put any remaining nations along that road to heel. Many of the nations of the eastern Ohio Valley would move west, far enough away from the English to avoid their wrath in this war. And the rebellion would slowly peter out in the Ohio Valley, as trade would begin again. There was no formal treaty or end to this war. As with so many conflicts on the frontier of colonial America, it would just slowly return to an unspent tension amongst settlers and natives, merchants conducting business, and their lives would simply go on. Thank you for listening to this episode of American Political History. If you want to support the show, please subscribe and leave a five-star rating, and share this show with someone you think would enjoy listening. Thank you again, and until next time.